Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, a conversation between John Hudak and Michael O'Hanlon about the president's request for an authorization to use military force against ISIS. For this month's What's Happening in Congress segment, I'm joined by Mike O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy, to discuss the new uh, request for the authorization for the use of force against ISIS. Mike, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. The president has been conducting operations against ISIS for some time now, but uh, last week he requested a, an authorization from Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about the existing authority he's been using to conduct military operations? Well, as you know, there are two main frameworks for what we've been doing in this century since 9-11. And the first was the so-called authorization on the use of military force, uh, using sort of that general phrase as a proper noun for the 2001 legislation that followed shortly after the 9-11 attacks, I think nine days later or so. And that essentially allows us to go after anyone who was involved in those attacks or gave sanctuary or support to those involved in those attacks anywhere in the world. And that's part of the objectionable framework that President Obama doesn't like. He would like something more restrictive. The irony here is there's also, as you know, a second congressional resolution from the following year, specifically on Iraq, which is what Mr. Obama really had a beef with George Bush about, the Iraq war. But there's a little bit of a disconnect here because Obama's beef with Bush was about the policy. In fact, there really isn't, to my mind, a big problem with the legal framework. Congress did vote separately on Iraq. It wasn't as if Bush simply said, well, I've got this 2001 legislation and I'm going to use it with the minimal ties that I've established between Saddam Hussein and some sympathizers to Al-Qaeda to justify the Iraq invasion. Bush didn't do that. So you can like the Iraq war or not. But to me, there always has been this separate piece of legislation which is now, in effect, all that we're really talking about changing. The 2001 legislation is going to be kept. And I'm not always a a big supporter, not usually um, in the same camp as MoveOn.org, but I would agree with one part of their logic and their critique of what's going on here, which is that that 2001 legislation, as long as it stands, allows Mr. Obama to do a lot of things with any group that has direct lineage from al-Qaeda, including, I would argue, ISIS irrespective of what we might now do with this 2015 law. So the 2015 law is sort of replacing the 2002 legislation, which is obsolete anyway, because Saddam's gone. So to me, there's a little bit of an oxymoronic quality to this entire enterprise. So there's not much of a policy change involved in the the new authorization. This is more about optics and messaging and, and legacy, really, for Mr. Obama. Yeah, it sort of feels like the law professor's revenge, you know, that, um, And again, I'm not saying this as a a harsh critic of Mr. Obama on a lot of these specific decisions that he's getting a hard time about right now. I at least see some of what he's been proposing or understand it. And I understand his leeriness about getting drawn into another big ground war in the Middle East. But of course, no one's proposing that. And if anybody was going to propose it, it would be him, not Congress anyhow. Now, he may be worried about, you know, his successor and maybe it's going to be another Bush. And so maybe he would just assume that the successor have to come back and ask for permission explicitly to authorize any big new war. And he wants to prevent the successor from using existing legislation to undertake that. But it's not clear really what problem he's solving with this proposal, because again, we're going to keep the 2001 law intact. So if the the successor wanted to be sufficiently uh, creative in his use of that law, 
he might be able, he or she might be able to launch another war anyway. But again, the Bush legacy, whether you like George W. Bush or not, the Bush legacy was when you launch a big new war, you do have to go back to Congress for explicit permission. And so again, it feels sort of like even at a theoretical level, I'm not sure what problem is being solved here. Certainly at a policy level, I'm confused. So the way this works is the president has now formally requested uh, this of Congress and it's in Congress's hands. How likely do you think a new authorization is to pass uh, the House and Senate? You know, I really can't get a read on the likelihood here. What I'd like to see, frankly, is the whole debate just be dropped. And let's debate the five or six countries in the Middle East, the broader Middle East, where we have big problems right now. And we have to decide, let's have some hearings, maybe on one or two of them, the Congress should be uh, passing at least resolutions asking the president to rethink his approach. So we've got Yemen and Libya that are deteriorating. We've got Syria that remains a mess. We've got Iraq, which is showing some hopefulness, but there's still some big political decisions that need to be made there. We've got Afghanistan, where the president's hoping to pull out by the end of next year. Uh, Arguably, Pakistan is the biggest enchilada of all because it has nuclear weapons. I'd like to see a, a systematic review of policies towards all of those places under a common umbrella, but with some detail to each one. And that would be, to me, a much better debate than where we're headed now with the AUMF. Mike, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. My guest today is Kathy Moon, the SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies and Senior Fellow in the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at Brookings. And she is also a professor of political science and Wasserman Chair of Asian Studies at Wellesley College. Professor Moon is the author of numerous books and articles on subjects including the U.S.-Korea Alliance, Human Rights in North Korea, and the Emerging Political Influence of Korean Americans. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you so much, Fred. Uh, Let's start with some kind of getting to know you questions. Sure. Uh, You're relatively new at Brookings. I believe you started last year or sometime? Last summer, yes. Uh, You're coming here. I think you're splitting your time between here and Wellesley up in Massachusetts. What's it like to uh, traverse the two worlds? Well, I'm actually uh, commuting every week, um, so it's a new experience, but um, I am full-time at Brookings, um, but I do have my family in, in uh, Cambridge, Mass., so I do visit um, back up there. Uh, it, it's, um, it was very exciting to be a jet setter from Boston to D.C., uh, but now it's getting a little tiring, um, but it's nice to, in a way, get away from D.C., partly because you get to see a larger perspective on life mm-hmm. instead of being in the, what I call, political Hollywood um, <laughs> that D.C. can be sometimes. It used to be set around here, and I've been at Brookings for a long time, so this goes way back, 15 years or more, that Brookings was like a university without students. Uh, but you are at a university with students, and you're at Brookings. So do you, in your time here, do you think that is true about Brookings anymore? It's an interesting way to look at Brookings. Um, I have found this institution to be so outstanding, beyond my expectations, in terms of uh, institutional leadership, intellectual vision, um, the professionalism and the high standards of my colleagues. I mean, I, I walk into the office every day and feel inspired just by being around the people I'm with. Um, and that doesn't always happen in universities. There are a lot of petty politics and people, um, you know, can be very uh, myopic about the work they do. But at Brookings, there is a, ten- a tendency to want to share and to discuss and to be relevant to a larger world. So, that speaks to me uh, very much. 
I look at my job and role at Brookings, and I look at Brookings as, in a way, a public educational institution. And I look at my job as being a public educator. I have been teaching at Wellesley for over 20 years um, at a private institution and with a limited number of um, limited, I guess, uh, constituency, mostly 18 to 22-year-olds. And so, in a way, it is very refreshing and a privilege to be able to reach um, a greater audience in Washington, in the U.S., and in the world through the work at Brookings. Let's back up a little bit. Why did you want to become a scholar in the first place, if that was your, your, your original ideal? Well, it's an interesting question um, that probably has a longer story over coffee or wine, but I'll make it very short. I grew up in a um, very hyper-education-oriented Korean-American immigrant family. My parents instilled in me and my younger sister this notion that we have not finished our education until and unless we get our PhDs. So, of course, going to college was uh, just part of, you know, the water we drank, right? Um, but even at college, there was just never, there was never a question that we would go on to further studies. And my sister is a physician, um, but when she decided not to do a PhD in her 20s, she lamented that I will be the only one in my family, in our family, without a PhD. Oh and so I have a father, mother with PhDs, and of course myself. And um, I did tell my sister, you are a doctor right. of some sort, so it's okay. But it's just, um, it, it was just the way I grew up to um, take education seriously, to take learning um, as just an everyday part of my existence. And in many ways, I think I'm well suited to be a teacher and a scholar uh, because I like to know what's going on, but I also like to sit back and observe. And um, I had originally thought in my teens that I would be a foreign service officer, a U.S. diplomat. What I learned at the age of 21, um, working at the U.S. Embassy in Seoul, was that as a government official, um, no matter how hard you try to simply convey what's going on in the way you see it, um, there is the issue of messaging that goes through multiple layers of reviews and also multiple layers of bureaucracies. And um, ultimately, you don't get to sign off and write your own um, a byline. It's a cable that becomes anonymous. And uh, I realized then at 21, it was very unsatisfying. I wanted to have my own name on what I wrote and to take full responsibility for it. So I realized, hmm, maybe the life of a scholar is more suited to me. Okay, very interesting. And, and one more question about your background. Why Korea studies? Why Asia studies? Well, that, the professional choices in terms of Asia, Korea, I think have a lot to do with my own personal um, background. And it's not about my personal identity as a Korean American, but more so my family upbringing, that I really was reared by my family, especially my father, to serve as a human bridge. That's what he used to always say, that, that I want you to grow up to be a human bridge between America and Korea. And I was very fortunate to have uh, spent my early youth in Korea in the 1960s, late 60s up to 1971, um, at a time when Korea was very poor, 
uh, and struggling in many ways, but I also was able to to witness and be part of a culture that was incredibly warm and embracing and generous um, and had more time for people, had more time for conversation and relational maintenance and care. And those are things that I think the contemporary Korean society that is so hyper-modern, um, hyper-cosmopolitan, hyper-technologized, <laughs> Um, in many ways, um, has lost. So I find it a privilege to be able to hearken back to a traditional Korea. I was reared by my maternal grandparents who came of age um, from the Japanese colonial period on. They went through that, World War II, the Korean War, uh, Korea's rise um, economically, politically, so I was very lucky to have the old Korea and the new Korea be accessible to me. And in that sense, I think it was very, it was a sensible thing for me to use those experiences um, as a great foundation for my professional work. I started out as a China scholar. Mm -hmm. I went to graduate school to study Chinese foreign policy. And... Um, I was of a generation of, uh, of Asian Americans uh, who did not have access to studying Korea back in the 1980s um, at university. So in many ways, um, people studied Chinese or Japanese, but I was always interested in Chinese history, culture, mostly Chinese philosophy, um, and of course, all those aspects of uh, Chinese um, cultural life um, had a huge influence on Korea's development historically. And so um, it, it made sense in many ways. And then in graduate school, studying China uh, back in 1986-87, I started branching out and learning more about Korea, Japan. So it, it was a pretty organic experience um, and evolution. Thank you very much for sharing that, Kathy. I'm always really interested in learning how people arrive at, at where they are in their life. Uh, let me ask you one more question, kind of related to who you are. Uh, maybe it's a segue, maybe it's a bridge to our discussion about Korea today. Uh, your Wellesley bio says that, among other things, uh, you love novels. I love novels. Uh, is there any novel that you might recommend uh, to listeners? The novel I would recommend is by Mo Yin, a Chinese author. Uh, the book in the English title is called Sandalwood Death. It is a very difficult a book to read, um, emotionally for one, because the whole story is about how the main actor or, or the main, um, per, the main uh, character, uh, he is a torturer in the imperial Chinese tradition. And um, that, that is his job. That is his profession, his vocation even. What is amazing is that he has to come up with the most outrageous ways to torture people in prolonged, agonizing ways. And when I read that, the writing, even through translation, is just fantastic. It is, it is just, um, I found it so compelling, the storyline, as well as the development of the characters, um, the intricacies of the relationships, um, but the agonizing detail uh, I would say this meticulous study of torture that the uh, character, main character, the executioner does is, is, you know, 
mentally quite a challenge to take in in hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I've been thinking about this, reading about the Egyptian Coptic Christians who have been beheaded, but they were their heads were sawed off um, by ISIS. By ISIL, recently. yeah, recently. And it has really made me think that the egregiousness and outrageousness of the novel was truly not even that outrageous and egregious because we are witnessing what's going on, what should be in, in the fantasy world um, in a grotesque way. We're seeing it in reality. Um, so I, I have been so disturbed and concerned about what is going on um, in the Middle East um, and also the kind of uh, affront to human life and to human dignity that um, is taking place. So I think Sandalwood Death, uh, it is a laborious read uh, because simply because it is really hard to take in, you know, page by page, these word by word descriptions of torture. But in some ways, I think it might be very relevant to what's really going on in many parts of the world today. It's a, it's a terrible thing what has been going on, and I'll I'll put a link to that book in the show notes on our website. Um, let's uh, let's move into a discussion of um, the Koreas, and I and I want to actually use another novel as kind of our bridge into that, and that's the Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson. Yes, I think I read it last year, maybe two years ago. Um, that that was about my extent of uh, seeing, if you will, even in a novel, North Korea. Um, and, and I'm sure most Westerners don't have any idea what's going on there. First of all, what did you think of that novel? I found The Orphan Master's Son uh, very compelling. It was hard to put down. Um, but I, I must say that, um, you know, when I read these kinds of books, I'm reading, I love novels, I live on novels, but I'm not only reading to enjoy a novel and the literary aspect, but when I read about the Koreas, it's, it's impossible for me to distance myself as a, as a Korea scholar. Um, and also as somebody who knows the language very well and the cultural, um, relational aspects. So I found The Orphan Master's Son, the storyline really fascinating, the portrayal of, um, Kim Jong il, the uh, deceased leader of North Korea um, and his relationships with uh, these various uh, characters. Um, you know, he sort of makes these cameo appearance, appearances. Um, very interesting um, because it's really not about him or about his regime, but about how individuals or one individual in particular, the protagonist, um, is able to negotiate and navigate his existence. It's an existential tale um, about his life as a North Korean in a society that is uh, becoming more and more impossible for him to understand. And in the end, he is so love wins out over loyalty to the state. Um, and so he tries to save the woman he loves who has been serving the state and serving Kim Jong-il for, for decades. Um, so it's a fascinating story. But I also found the, um, the, the part that I found least credible was the relational aspects of his North Korean characters. Um, and I think because he is, does not have access, the author does not have access to the language and the culture, and also North Korean culture, 
as it has evolved over time, not just the way that it is um, portrayed in Western media. I found the dialogues um, strange because they, the, the kind of dialogues that took place in the, in the novel would not really take place in real life North Korean society or real life Korean language. Um, and I found some of the um, relational aspects with his own parents and family members uh, very difficult to understand. But I think the point of the author was to show how alienated um, individuals could become in a totalitarian society where you can't even trust your parents and your parents definitely don't trust you, um, where even in an intense, passionate love situation, you don't know ultimately if you can fall backwards and somebody, will, your loved one will catch you or not, and that at any point, death could be hovering around right. the corner because um, you're unsafe. So I think in those respects, it was a very compelling tale. Okay. Well, how do you, as a scholar, access the culture, the information, the news of North Korea specifically? I think studying North Korea in the United States, um, we have to, as a scholar, one has to fight against many obstacles. One obstacle, of course, is the lack of transparency uh, in North Korea and the information from North Korea. Um, people like to say opaque, um, but so we have to really read between the lines of what's coming out of the state propaganda. Uh, and all, But also, I find that we have to, as scholars, wade and sift through the other obstacle, uh, which is the international media and Western media, and also South Korean media, that tell a certain narrative, have a certain gloss over stories regarding North Korea. So it is not as if Western international media um, tells the truth mm -hmm. about North Korea because there are political agendas and there are also political narratives taking place. So I think the um, analytical part is doubly um, a challenge uh, because of the information difficulties out of North Korea and then also the information biases or editorialized information in the Western and international press. But what I try to do is read as diversely as I can, meaning that I reach for sources of information that are diverse, both available through the internet um, as well as um, print. And I also try to attend and um, talk with individuals and organizations that have been established in North Korea over time, so through humanitarian work or diplomatic work, um, or even tourism and those American, European uh, business people who do work uh, with North Koreans. And what I have to do is then try to understand all these different experiences, observations really, anecdotes, perspectives, and try to come up with my own framework. You know, it's a canvas in a way, and I have to be able to paint the way that makes sense to me based on the actual um, empirical evidence that I can gather as best I can. And I also like to read about what's going on in uh, North Korea regarding, quote, pop culture. It's hard to think of North Korea <laughs> as having a pop culture, but it does. Trends, social trends. 
Um, and one of the things that um, in our prior discussion before our our radio uh, broadcast, um, we had mentioned uh, the notion of, you know, when I visited Pyongyang two summers ago, what stuck out or what struck me the most? And I have to say, women's shoes, women's sandals, shoes. Okay. Were, were just, to me, fascinating. I was taking pictures of women's shoes and my um, academic colleagues whom I went with uh, were making a joke that I have a shoe fetish. And the reality was, what I did was look at what people are are wearing, how they are behaving with one another, where they congregate and talk to one another in the public streets, where they don't, which streets are empty, which streets are not, where the cars are, where they're not, where there are LED lights, where they um, stop all of a sudden in the same road. Um, looking at apartment buildings and this is another thing that struck me, solar panels. In one apartment building that it had, might have 30 stories, you will see maybe three windows out of the blue that have solar panels. Why those three units and not the whole building? How did those three units get those solar panels? Where did they come from? They probably come from China. What do they do in order to be able to afford it and to know about it? So just even visiting there as a so-called tourist, but for me, it was a way to do research since we can't go do field research there. Asking questions constantly about everything I see, every everything I don't see, everything I hear and don't hear, um, and trying to, again, put it on a canvas and uh, paint it in a way that makes sense and make room for changes. One of the reasons why I was so stuck on these shoes was because it, looking at women's sandals, it was in the summertime, was a way to, it challenged me in a way that I had not expected because the North Korea that I had learned about and read about tends to be very puritanical and anything that's glitzy with rhinestones and you know, very showy. Um, they are considered bourgeois mm -hmm. and Western and decadent. What I saw on the streets of Pyongyang were decadent shoes, <laughs> decadent sandals, high heels. Um, I would say scandalous <laughs> in some ways. And women wearing them very casually, unselfconsciously. And then I started thinking, where is this coming from? It's coming from China. Chinese imports. Where are the Chinese getting them from? The Chinese are getting the styles. They're um, out of South Korea. So the South Korean um, fashions, media, we know, go right into China. And then the Chinese have their knockoff versions. <laughs> and then they go into North Korea. So in a strange way, North Korea is, North Koreans are consuming the very stuff that the North Korean state does not want North Koreans to consume, which is South Korean production, manufacturers of consumer goods, as well as ideas. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I assume while you were there uh, observing these decadent shoes, you were being closely observed as well by monitors or, or chaperones or something. Well, we have um, all foreigners have to have um, handlers. And we had basically our tour guides and uh, 
And we know that we're being reported on at every hotel, um, and I overheard uh, my name being mentioned on a list of foreign guests in a particular hotel, etc. Just take it for granted. You know, it, you you know that um, you are not uh, anonymous. But what I was surprised at what, uh, was the relative freedom in terms of interacting with the North Koreans we did come into touch with. And even though these are elites who have been vetted by the state, when you get to know them, and the fact that I speak Korean um, was very handy. When I spoke with them and spoke with them in Korean, um, the sense of the Korean, you know, sharing of uh, a culture, linguistic um, comfort, these things came through in very strong ways. And I had some North Koreans tell me their family stories and their perceptions of society in ways that I would never have imagined possible, meaning they were very candid. Um, they held me in confidence in a way. And um, I realized, wow, there is an aspect of just being a human being that really works. The other thing that I... Uh, really enjoyed was learning how to navigate dialogue with North Koreans. That is, they have their, their uh, lines that they have memorized and they know that they can only go so far in a conversation, especially of a political nature. But I was surprised. They really wanted to engage. We talked about nuclear weapons programs. We talked about a potential peace treaty. And this was all personal conversation I had with my handlers and with other, you know, North Koreans who were all vetted. But what's really interesting is that when I would do pushback and catch them in a way in their own ironies or contradictions, they would stop. And then the next day, we would slowly pick up uh, a strand of the conversation and keep going. And what I realize is Americans are used to, in our conversational habits, we're used to highway driving. You know, we, we think that we should be on clear roads, well-paved and articulate and, you know, very direct. We like to see our exit signs and get off and make a stop, come back on. And in North Korea, I realized dealing with um, North Koreans, but also my experience in dealing with South Koreans, especially from an earlier period in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it's like navigating, walking, taking a walk through little alleyways in villages. So you walk a little bit and then there's a wall because there's a house there. And these are very narrow alleys. So you have to sit there and say, okay, there's nowhere to go. It's a block. No, you, you can't just accept that it's a block. You backtrack and you say, oh, you remember there was a little right turn alley. You go down that road. You have no idea where you're actually going. And if you're going to come out of this maze, but the whole point is to keep the conversation going. And I found the North Koreans that I engage with very willing to continue in that alleyway style conversation. And by the end, you come out and you've learned a lot more than the one strand of, of uh, thinking that you began with. Because as you explore the alleyways, you're exploring so much um, in a conversation that takes many directions. So it was very enriching. Um, and I would say that uh, overall, um, I think the U.S. needs to 
be very sensitive to the way that we can culturally access North Koreans, but also structurally, that sometimes just sitting, you know, as formal diplomats face to face may not always be the, the, the best route, the highway route, that sometimes these informal, casual alleyway conversations, right. so to speak, in a, uh, as a metaphor, might yield more. That is a great metaphor. Um, let's, uh, let's continue on with some other uh, aspects of North Korea. And, and I just have to admit, I'm kind of coming at you as a kind of maybe a typical Westerner with a limited view. So uh, take it in that spirit. So I'm thinking about the current um, leader, Kim Jong-un. He's, he's relatively young for a leader of a country. Uh, as far as we know, he has no military experience. He has very little political experience. He's just the son and the grandson right. of the founders of Korea. How, or what is the mechanism by which that particular person commands the allegiance of, of the North Korean state, of the elites in that country? How does he hold power? I think the simple way to a very difficult, complex question, the simple way to answer your question is um, dynastic rule. North Korea is an oddball in the, in the socialist tradition um, for continuing this um, feudalistic tradition, <laughs> anti-communist, anti-socialist tradition of a feudal monarch, of a monarchy, of a feudal style. Uh, and he gets his, Kim Jong-un gets his legitimacy by being a Kim and being the direct descendant of Kim Il-sung, the grandfather um, and the originator of this dynasty, and then Kim Jong-il, the father. Um, that is the, the main source, and that is where what I call a secular theocracy that uh, I see North Korea as uh, comes into play. That even if you do, even if a regular North Korean does not believe in every aspect of a religion, just like many of us in other societies, we can be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, but you know you don't buy everything um, that you're told uh, by the church or by the imam or or by the Bible. Um, just like that, I think many North Koreans, regular North Koreans, they still have this structure, institutional structure of this theocracy that governs um, over their society and that is part of their daily culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, the system works because people are used to it, and that is the one source of legitimacy that they know. Um, I think in terms of the everyday activities of Kim Jong-un um, and how he handles uh, the bureaucratic, the governance aspect of political life, uh, it is probably a very big challenge for him. Um, he has probably at most about a hundred very close insider elites who protect him, his family, but also protect themselves um, and their privileges. Uh, and then you have thousands of other elites who are part of that system, but they may not be as close to the, the coterie, the tight coterie um, who runs the uh, DPRK. And so we're, we're talking about a very small group of people who are in power. And I think he has to work very carefully um, to make sure that those who are his supporters um, are happy. Mm-hmm. He has to please them, keep them happy, uh, also adjudicate conflicts among them. 
I think his age is a liability because in the Asian tradition, it's not just that he's 30 and 30, uh, 30, 32 and inexperienced, but in the Asian tradition, um, you need to have gravitas, uh, through age and experience. So even if he had been schooled in North Korea and been in the military and all that, he's still too young to have the gravitas, um, extended to him by, by North Korean, um, elites. Uh, but, uh, so he has a challenge there. He has a challenge in terms of dealing with uh, Asian leaders. Xi Jinping of China, it is very difficult for Xi Jinping to actually meet Kim Jong-un directly or go visit Kim Jong-un because an elder mm -hmm. leader cannot actually go to visit a younger leader and, uh, quote, pay respects. It has to come the other way. Um, but it's like a father-son situation. Same thing with South Korean President Park Geun-hye. Uh, it's a mother-son, you know, age gap. So, you know, it's an awkward position uh, in terms of diplomatic uh, relations as well for Kim Jong-un. That's leading me to my, my next question, which is more about the North Korean state itself. Uh, and this kind of comes out of the, the story that we heard last year about the cyber hacking of Sony over that movie, The Interview, and many blamed the North Korean state for that, which got me thinking, um, how does... How does a, a country that to many outside viewers seems rather poor manage to afford such a sophisticated um, cyber war ability, a seemingly very sophisticated military that, that seems to threaten the, South, uh, the Korean peninsula? And also they launch missiles and they also have nuclear weapons. I mean, how, how is that dynamic? How does that dynamic work? Well, it's an excellent question. And I need to go back in history a little bit um, in order for the answer to make sense. Most of the world, uh, quote unquote, discovered North Korea in um, the 1990s with the nuclear, when uh, the nuclear program became internationally known, even though we scholars have known that North Korea was developing a nuclear program, at least in ambition and ideas, uh, starting in the 1980s. What's important to keep in mind that people have forgotten or just don't know is that North Korea was a highly industrialized society and highly economically, um, I would say, uh, I wouldn't say developed, but a um, developing society um, up until the early 1970s. So until that time, actual economic and human indices of um, productivity, wealth, and human well-being were higher in the North than in the South. So in terms of um, infant mortality, uh, longevity, lifespan, education, um, women in the workforce, uh, uh, gender equality, uh, various aspects. So North Korea had industrialized a la the Soviet and Chinese models heavy industrialization, and they, under Kim Il-sung, they saw themselves as a very accomplished nation-state, um, having survived, not only survived, but having literally risen from the ashes of the Korean War and the devastating um, uh, bombings of the, of, of the UN forces um, on North Korean soil. So they are so proud, North Koreans are incredibly proud to this day of what the Kim Il-sung regime was able to accomplish in terms of rebuilding and refortifying, literally military terms and economic terms, a society 
and a place that had been devastated. And I think we have to keep that national pride really at the center of the work we do, especially um, as government officials. Because if you tend to look at North Koreans and treat them with disrespect or as you know, poor people or who need handouts um, or these uh, backward people, they will respond very negatively because that is not the um, that is not how they perceive themselves. Mm -hmm. They know of, and their history books tell them, even those young ones today are told of how great their nation became under Kim Il-sung, etc. So even this, even nuclear um, military capability, they it is an outgrowth. It's just a manifestation in a way for them of this power that they had harnessed and achieved from the 50s, 60s, 70s on. I don't think they see their nuclear development as something separate from what they had accomplished under Kim Il-sung, um, the uh, grandfather. So they have this history and trajectory of technological, industrial capabilities and ambition. They um, have ex uh, expended a lot of energy and resources into training mathematicians, engineers, um, information technology people in more recent years. And there is a history to that. There is a, a legacy that comes from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s mm -hmm. um, that continued. I think what you were just saying uh, about the way that North Koreans could be viewed inaccurately as, as people in poverty and so on, sounds like evidence of what you've called the myopic view of North Korea that many, uh, especially in Washington, have. Is, is that, is that your, the myopic view? I think the myopic view of North Korea, it's not just in the United States, it's, uh, it's global. And of course, North Koreans have a very myopic view of themselves, <laughs> needless to say. But the myopia comes from lack of information, um, lack of education on North Korea. We don't, we don't learn about North Korea in uh, grade school, high school, even at the college level, we have very few courses in the United States on the Koreas at all, um, despite the fact that the U.S. and the, and the Republic of Korea, South Korea, have um, had a military alliance and have very thick diplomatic relations and human relations for decades and decades, more than a half century. So we have a deficit of knowledge about the Koreas in the U.S. academy um, and in the U.S. public. And so the myopia comes partly from there. And the United States, the American public, quote, discovered again, learned about North Korea really through the nuclear program, um, the publicization of the nuclear program and the agreed framework back in, in the mid-1990s. And then, of course, through the famine, the great famine of the mid-1990s uh, and afterward, and after, uh, after, uh, afterwards. So... Uh, Americans, uh, when we think about North Korea, we think of starving people mm -hmm. and we think of nuclear weapons. But there's much more to North Korea than that. And there's also a history to the, to the famine and the starvation, as well as a history to the nuclear and other kinds of military technological capabilities and development. Um, so I think it's important that we get proper historical education 
about North Korea prior to the mid-1990s. The fact that North Korea um, had developed and had been doing quite well until its system basically hit inertia um, and also until the South Koreans just took off um, uh, economically and, of course, through democratization politically in the late 1980s. Um, and I think what we can do today to, um, to make our understanding of North Korea more broad is to uh, try to educate uh, people about North Korea as a historical whole. North Korean people also as separate from the state. Um, North Korea as having a culture of its own. We don't think of North Koreans as having a cultural life, but they do. Uh, we don't think of North Koreans as having family lives, um, and they do. So I think learning to see North Korea as a society like any other society with active, dynamic changes going on, and seeing the North Korean state as a very difficult, challenging, and at times threatening state, um, and an unstable state, um, those two can go to, to hand in hand. We need to do both. We need to look at the state as a problem that we need to address and hopefully resolve diplomatically. We also need to look at the society as having a history and a culture um, that people continue to live and change day to day. Well, that, uh, that makes me want to transition a little bit more to South Korea just for a few minutes. But let's, let's go there by way of this idea of reunification. Because um, everything you just said makes me think that, um, that maybe reunification is going to be a lot more difficult than anyone ever yes. could possibly believe. You know, the, the big example we have is the, the East and West Germans reunifying in the 1990s after decades apart. Uh, but I don't think that's an apt analogy. What, what, are the, what are the issues, what are the obstacles, what are the challenges around this uh, idea of reunification? I think on reunification, some people tend to be um, very naive and others tend to be very cynical. Overly naive and overly cynical is the way I would put it. The reason why the unification of the two Koreas will be more difficult, much more difficult than uh, what happened in, with Germany's, is because, uh, for one, German society, Germans on the uh, East and on the West, they had had uh, mail exchange, uh, telecommunications, access to one another. Uh, families were not completely isolated and divided. And also information uh, was not completely cut off. So East Germans could pick up information from West German radio, TV, etc. That is not the case in North Korea, although that is beginning to change. I think more information from the outside world is seeping in to North Korea. Um, and North and South eventually, um, I believe, will develop better routes to have family exchanges more regularly, systematically, and possibly even... Um, telecommunications and other forms of um, engagement on a interpersonal level. But apart from that, the North Koreans have to catch up on so many levels with the outside world. Not only with South Korea, but in terms of education, 
So the knowledge base has to be increased exponentially uh, if and when unification were to occur. The knowledge base of North Koreans in, uh, in particular, adapting to um, the knowledge economy and the knowledge culture that we live in globally. So information technology, of course, but uh, even pop culture and even um, language in, in South Korea, there are defectors from the North and South Korea, and there are studies that show that many defectors who have been living in South Korea for years still have a difficult time understanding South Korean Korean and um, being able to communicate fully. So yes, Koreans in the north of the 38th parallel as well as the south of the parallel like to believe that they are one people, one language, one common lineage, etc. But there are so many cultural divisions from language, from um, just different experiences in education, uh, family systems that have grown very differently, uh, evolved very differently in the South versus the North. All of these things are, on a personal level, issues that have to be um, dealt with. On a public level, the South Korean um, government and uh, academics have been studying the German unification uh, case for a long time, and particularly the economic aspects and the economic burdens that uh, West Germany had to take on because basically it was an absorption situation of the right. West taking on uh, all of the East. It's been very difficult, still is very difficult for the Germans. East Germans still fall behind um, the West on many uh, levels. In, in terms of the Korean Peninsula, th the gap between the North and the South will be even higher, but I think also the North Koreans will have higher expectations than even the Germans, East Germans, of their southern uh, compatriots. South Koreans assume that North Koreans come unification will serve as a cheaper labor <laughs> force, uh, will serve in a way as a second class um, pool of labor and of, um, I don't want to say second class citizenship, but they will not enjoy the full benefits because they won't know how to enjoy the full benefits of South Korean citizenship. Um, but North Koreans are not going to be putting up with that kind of treatment for very long. Uh, defectors in the South already have a very difficult time and have a lot of resentment toward the South Korean society for the discrimination they feel and for the kind of humiliations that they experience uh, as being sort of the undercaste. Um, and so, we are inevitably going to see a different kind of a class system of those who come from the North and those who come from the South, even under unification. And that is a very, very dangerous thing in a um, society that is going to have to f adapt very fast to multiple challenges. My biggest worry about unification is political, not economic, because very few people are thinking about the political ramifications and manifestations of unification or even uh, reconciliation and increased engagement between the two Koreas. And my worry is this, what will be the impact of unification on democracy in South Korea, but, but democracy on the peninsula? South Korea's democracy is very young. 
it has only been one generation uh, where, where people have been living in a democratic system and South Korea's democracy is still fragile and vulnerable in many, many ways. So when I think about adding 25 million people from the North and the 50 million people from the South together, mixing them up politically, I begin to wonder what kind of a political system can manage this kind of, quote, integration. And if democracy can successfully integrate North Koreans, how are we to do that? What are the institutional, normative, cultural, um, educational factors and facilities and ideas that are going to be needed in order for the political integration of North Koreans to take place. On top of that, South Korean society has been changing <laughs> rapidly in the last 20 years. It is no longer this hegemonic, homogeneous, ethnic Korean society that it always prided itself to be. It is increasingly a multi-ethnic uh, place, uh, society, and with multi, multiple types of uh, phenotypes, you know, facial features, physical right. features that look different. So you go to Seoul, you go to Busan, you go to the countryside, and you see uh, mixed ethnicity, mixed race children um, who are full Korean citizens speaking Korean language, going to Korean schools, but are discriminated against and have trouble integrating into larger Korean society. And so we have a South Korean society that is already facing uh, challenges of integrating 27,000, 30,000 North Korean defectors mm -hmm. into South Korean democracy. And we have hundreds of thousands of new immigrants in South Korea and their offspring who are Korean citizens integrating into South Korean social, political, economic life. How on earth are we going to manage 25 million from the North who are going to have who, so many needs that the government in particular will have to address. Basic needs of uh, economic needs, of shelter, education, job training, skills training, um, and of course then uh, demands for political participation, influence, etc. So these are huge questions that are out there, and we have very few answers so far. They, they sound like the kind of very important questions that a, uh, a political scientist at, at Brookings would would examine. And I understand you're, you're working on a book about the demographic changes in yes. the South in particular, so yes. it all kind of goes together. These are exactly the questions I'm asking in my book project. And I think um, you're right. It is, a, it is something that a scholar at Brookings should do because... Um, I like to study not only current issues, but, you know, midterm, long-term issues. And um, people have very short attention span for thinking about things coming down the road. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we really need to take seriously these um, big questions that the future will um, literally deliver to our front door. Well, I wish we had more time in this particular conversation. Uh, it's been fascinating. But we will uh, follow your work uh, uh, answering these questions. 
And uh, I really appreciate your time today, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was enjoyable. If you have any questions for Kathy Moon, John Hudak, Michael Hanlon, or any previous guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll try to get them answered in upcoming episodes. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Colzer, the graphic design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Eric Abalahan and Rebecca Weiser. You can find us on the web at brookings.edu bcp and download us on iTunes and Stitcher.